Hey, let me, um, let me pray for us. I know that Leslie just prayed, but I'm just pray for mostly for me, and then we'll dig into God's Word. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you have, um, you have pursued us. And God, as we've walked through this series so far, and we've seen how you've pursued people throughout the Old Testament, God, we're reminded that you are still pursuing us. You're still pursuing your glory by pursuing your people. So God, I pray that tonight, as we look at Isaiah 53 and we see a picture of you 700 years before the crucifixion, that we would realize that you are the pursuer of us. And God, if anybody in this room tonight feels unloved, if anybody in this room tonight feels unpursued, God, that they would know that you are pursuing them. So Father, tonight, would you just speak loudly? We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. If you got your Bible, go to Isaiah chapter 53. Um, we have been in a series called The Pursuit, and basically here's kind of broad spectrum what we've been doing. My friend Chris came last week and talked about the Davidic covenant, but we've been walking through the Old Testament, and kind of the major thesis of this whole deal is that God is pursuing people, that God is not different in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but God is the same God, and He's pursuing, that God His nature, His character is that He is a God who pursues. We see it from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We see it in Jesus that God is a missional God. He's on a mission, and His primary mission is He wants to be glorified, but He does that through pursuing His creation, His prime creation, you and me. And so we talked about a guy named Noah and his boat and a thing called the Noahic Covenant. We talked about the Abrahamic Covenant, that God was going to create a nation out of one guy, and that whole nation was going to bring Him glory. And then last week, Chris talked about the Davidic covenant, and basically through the line of David would come the Messiah, would come the one who was going to come and save the nation of Israel, but not just the nation of Israel, was going to save the whole world. And so through basically Abraham and Noah and David and these guys that we hear a lot about, especially if we've grown up in church, we see that God is a pursuing God. He's an active God. He's not static. And so He is pursuing these people. We've got a lot to cover. We've covered a lot of ground, right? But, but I want to I kind of just set some context for you tonight because we're going to hang out in Isaiah chapter 53. But to make this really, really make sense, I want to kind of set the table for you. So hang with me here as we kind of walk through just a bit of Old Testament history. And then we'll come to Isaiah 53. And, and it, will, it will be the difference between watching something in black and white and color if you hang with me for a second. See, the, the children of Israel have been in captivity. They go in captivity and out of captivity and in captivity because they are worshiping pagan gods. If you go throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that, that they remember the Lord, and then they forget the Lord. And when they forget the Lord, they worship other gods. And it ends up in their captivity. So if you kind of journey through the Old Testament, you see this thing happening. And here's, here's kind of what happens, is that the people of the Old Testament are awaiting a deliverer. It kind of seems like they're always awaiting a deliverer. If you come to a book called Nehemiah, and, and you don't necessarily have to turn there if you don't want to, but but you can, but you'll come to a book called Nehemiah, and, and there's a guy in Nehemiah, his name is Ezra, and something pretty amazing happens because we've just kind of gone through a whole lot of Old Testament history, but I want to stop here because it helps make sense of what's going to happen tonight in Isaiah 53. In the book of Nehemiah, the people are gathered back from exile. They've gathered back from being in captivity. They're in captivity because of their sin. Now, when captivity happens, the people of Israel are pushed out of their land. They're pushed away from their temple. The worship of the one true God is not happening. They're not reading the Torah or the law like we talked about. None of that stuff is happening. And Ezra and Nehemiah are rebuilding the walls. They're rebuilding the city. And the people come back. They rebuild the walls and rebuild the city. 
And Ezra gets a hold of the law of God. And it says in Nehemiah chapter 8 that Ezra stands up and reads the law. The law, what we know, is the, five, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And so he gets up and he reads it. Day and night, he reads it. He reads it from beginning to end. Now, I don't know if you can imagine this, if someone just stood up and read the first five books of the Old Testament from beginning to end, did not stop. Some of you are like, man, that'd be boring, right? For them, it cut them to the heart. Why? Because they had not read it for so long. There was a drought of the Word of God. And so here's what happens. In chapter 8, he reads the law. In chapter 9, I'll just read it to you. It says this, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel, they were assembled together with fasting, and they were in sackcloth, which means they were mourning and they were repenting. And with the earth on their heads, meaning they had poured dirt on their heads, that was a sign of repentance. Verse 2 says this, And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners, which means they separated themselves from the foreigners and their gods. And they stood and they confessed their sin and their iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in this place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of that day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. See, something happened on this day. Is that they had been in captivity and they'd been brought back. And after not hearing the word of God, it is read to them continuously. And what happens is their souls are cut to the core. And they realize that they've been worshipping pagan gods that they haven't honored the Lord. And in chapter 9, there is brokenness and there is wailing and they are in sackcloth and they're pouring dirt on their heads, not because they want to look weird, but because they want to confess their sin to God. They are broken, man. They're broken. Say, God, we have not lived for you. We have not loved you. We've worshipped other gods. You're the God who got us out of Egypt and now we're worshipping other gods. And it says that they confess their sin and not just their sin, the sin of their fathers because it had been so long since they had worshipped the one true God. But there's this sense in Ez, in, with Ezra reading this book and, and in Nehemiah that these people are really messed up. There's this sense that it's not going to be fixed on that day. There's this deep burden that something else has to fix us because it is so ingrained in us. I don't know if you have the new Switchfoot CD, but there's a song in there that gets this to the core. And there's a line that John Foreman says, and it says, I am the sickness. There's not a drug that can cure me. I'm the sickness. They realized that day that they were the sickness. They had this problem deep within them. So as they're hearing the law of God read and they're repenting and they're realizing something has to change us from the outside and then affect change inside out, they would have remembered a guy by the name of Isaiah. Because here's what the nation of Israel is doing all this time. Noah, Abraham, David, they are waiting on a redeemer. They are waiting on a deliverer. They are waiting on a Messiah, one who will come and save them. There is a wait. There is anticipation. I don't know what you anticipate in your life. Like we anticipate a lot of things, right? We think about a lot of things. We anticipate a lot of things. I was thinking this week about what are some things that we anticipate in life, as, especially as college students. What are some things that you anticipate? What are some things that I anticipated in my life when I was 20 years old? Here's the only thing I could think of. It kept coming to my head. I even asked my wife's small group, what do you anticipate? Now, that was a group of girls, so this, this is a little biased. But they all said marriage. And I, and I remember when my wife and I got engaged, we got engaged. We had been dating for three years. We got engaged. And I probably have told this story, kind of, 
But we got engaged, and the day after we got engaged, Rachel said, why don't you come to my house so we can start planning our wedding? And I'm like, what? I'm like, I need a tux, and I need to say I do. That is it. Oh, yeah, by the way, we need a pastor, okay? So I go to her house, and she's got all of the stuff. Like She's got like a trapper keeper like this of like stuff that is basically for our wedding that she's been anticipating since the day she was like six years old. <laughs> Guys, I'm just telling you, man. It's coming. So girls and guys anticipate the wedding day for totally different reasons. Um, so, so my anticipation was not about the cake and the birds and the dress, okay? I'm just going to say that. But my wife's was, and so, and so I anticipated those things or tried to with her. But there was this anticipation, like this day is coming where I will be freed, right? And I will be married, and I will be one with my wife, and this day is coming. And we talked about this day, and we planned for this day. And sometimes in a year, I'm just going to be honest with you, there were days where it felt like it would never happen. For the nation of Israel, they have anticipated a day when Messiah would come. And as they're standing there, hearing Ezra read the law of God, knowing that they are fully inadequate to honor God and to worship God, they would have remembered another guy by the name of Isaiah. If you got your Bibles, go to Isaiah. You may already be there. But the book of Isaiah is a pretty interesting thing. Isaiah is a prophet. And in the Old Testament, there are minor prophets and there are major prophets. And the major prophets are not like the guys who are in the big leagues and the minor prophets are amateurs. But it's typically called that because the major prophets just simply have more material. And the minor prophets, their job was very important because a prophet is somebody who speaks for God. So you've got these guys in the Old Testament who, when Israel was in captivity or before Israel went into captivity or after Israel was in captivity, they, they spoke for God. So here's what a prophet is. A prophet is basically a megaphone for God. God would choose a man. He would say, you are going to be my prophet. And then he would say, here is what you are to say. For Isaiah, Isaiah is what we call a pre-exilic or pre-captivity prophet. So Isaiah talked to the nation of Israel about the exile that was going to come. See, the exile that they just came back from in Israel, like we just read in Nehemiah, was the exile that Isaiah talked to them about all throughout. And so they would have remembered, at least some of them, what Isaiah said, that that day would come where they would be in exile, that that day would come where they would be separated from the land that God had given them, that that day had come where they would be separated, in a sense, from God, that they would be in exile. But they also would have remembered this passage in Isaiah 53. Here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to walk through Isaiah 53, and the really cool thing about Isaiah 53 is it is a picture of Jesus 700 years before Jesus died on the cross. It is a picture of what happened. So Isaiah, as a prophet, was told to speak by God. And here's the really cool thing, I think, this is amazing, is that God is just telling the prophets what to say. Isaiah was one of those guys. And as these prophets, not just Isaiah, but other guys who were having messianic prophecies about the coming of someone who would save, they didn't fully know what they were talking about. I want you to get this tonight, because... Some of us, you've heard this passage before, and as we walk through it, you're going to go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's Jesus. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's Jesus. Oh, yeah, he was, cr- he was, he was crushed for our iniquities. He, his stripes will heal us. That's Jesus, of course. Some of us know that. But you have to put yourself in the shoes of Isaiah and people reading the Old Testament then. They really fully didn't know 
what was being talked about. Could you imagine that? Like you have been, you're prophesying for the Lord, but you don't fully understand or know what is going on. But we have the, the privilege of years and years and years and years and thousands of years later looking back at this. So if you've got your Bibles, look at Isaiah chapter 53 with me. We'll start in verse 1, and we're just going to break this down tonight. Here's what it says. Verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before us like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He begins and he, he starts talking about this servant. So tonight, as we kind of read through this, we're going to see there are two players in Isaiah 53. As Isaiah is prophesying, there are two players. There is the servant of God and there's the rebels against God. The servant of God and the rebels against God. As Isaiah is prophesying, those are the two main players in Isaiah chapter 53. The servants, the rebels. And the servant interacts with the rebels, some as we'll see that. But there's a servant and then there's the rebels. And there's this kind of get this out of the way here. There's a lot of people, especially people who are not Messianic Jews, especially Jews who will look at this passage, they would say this is not talking about Christ. Because what they will say is that the servant in this passage is not Christ, it's Israel, the nation of Israel. But that breaks down. And we're going to see why that breaks down in a second. The servant in here is not Israel. It is somebody besides Israel because the servant in this passage is saving Israel and he's saving the nations. So it's not Israel. It's somebody else. It's God's servant. So as Isaiah is proclaiming this, he's prophesying this, and he's talking about this servant, but he doesn't know who this servant is. If you've got your Bibles, look at verse 6, because this is really the center part of it, and then we'll kind of work our way out from this. Verse 6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to our own ways, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'm going to start there because that paints the picture of the rebel. It says, like sheep, we have all gone astray. So here's the first thing we see in this passage is this, is that the servant comes to rebellious people. He says, each of us have gone to our own way, and then he compares humanity and the people that the servant came to, he compares them to sheep. You may not know why. If you've been to Africa, you know why. There are sheep walking all over the place in stinking Ethiopia. And they are, probably apart from donkeys, the dumbest animals on the face of the planet. We would be driving our bus, a huge, huge bus, down the street, heading somewhere, and just sheep would just walk out in the middle of the road. And we're in like herds of them. And we'd have to stop, and like our driver would get out and shoo the sheep away. These sheep were all going their own way, and they did not care that there was a bus coming, right? Sheep are the dumbest animals. Why do they need shepherds? Why do they need guys with hooks to pull them back in? Because they are absolutely stupid. And it's been proven. They've done studies of brains of sheep. They do not have cognitive ability. They are some of the dumbest animals. So here's how this reads, verse 6. I'm just going to encourage you tonight a little bit. <laughs> That's why you come here, right? It says, it, 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 would, it would really sound good like this, verse 6. All we are idiots. And have gone astray. He's, this picture he's painting is that the servant of God that Isaiah is prophesying about is coming to these rebellious, stupid people. 
Why? Stupid. Because we've decided to go our own way. When I was in Ethiopia, we um, were going to this village, like I said, and we realized that we could only take horsey carts into the village. Because the first night we got there, we said it was late, but we had to make a trip into the village so we could actually see where we were going to set up the next day. So we loaded everybody in the bus, and we took off for the village. And we were racing sunset, man. Because we knew if it got dark out there, we were going to be in trouble because there are not streetlights. There's nothing like that. We were racing the sun. So we get there, and we realize that there are no horsey carts around. All those guys have gone home. The only option is to walk for an hour or to take our bus into the village. So there are two routes into the village. One route is a little bit longer, but we were sure, because we were told by a guy that lived there, that it was much easier. The bus could pass. It would take us about another hour, but the bus could pass. The other route would take us about 20 minutes, but the guy told us the bus will not pass. The bus driver said, no, we can, we can do this. Now, I don't know why. I don't know why the bus driver chose the shorter route because nobody in Africa ever does anything efficiently, especially not in Ethiopia, man. They are some of the most, I love them, but they're some of the most inefficient people in the world. Like, they'll be like, this guy, this, one of our contacts was like, yeah, I have to, uh, we were driving for an hour one day, and he said, yeah, I've got to go back and give the money to uh, some of the pastors at the pastor training for their lunch. And I was like, we just left there. He's like, yeah, I know, but I'll go back and give it to him after we get there. I'm like, what? You people are so inefficient, right? It drives me crazy. So the bus driver takes off through this, this road that has ruts that are about two and three feet deep. If you've ever been in Africa, you, you may know what I'm talking about. These roads are rough, man. And we're going on the bus, and we get on this one, this one lift, basically, and the bus is seriously like, if this is the bus, it was like this. And there was a guy on our trip that was, I'm not lying, he's about 300 pounds. And he was on this side of the bus. And I said, hey, David, do you think maybe you could get on the other side of the bus? That may just help our situation here. So we all eventually just got off the bus. And we're standing there, and I should have showed you a picture, but there I have a picture where the bus literally looks like it is about to tip over. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, the bus is going to tip over. And so finally he gets out of that deal. But here's the reality is that he got stuck because he wanted to go his own way. Here's what Isaiah says. The servant came to rebellious people. That's the core of our problem. We want to do our own thing. We don't want to do what God says. We want to go our way. We want to do it our way and do our thing. And so God says, no, I have this way. And so we, like sheep, like idiots sometimes, we go do our own thing. But our own thing always ends bad for us. It always ends with us stuck in a rut. It always ends with us painfully at times. So he says this servant comes to these rebellious messed up people who just want to do their own thing. And so because of that, the second thing is this, is these rebellious people reject this servant. Check out what it says here in Isaiah chapter 53. The first part, we read it just a second ago, but it says in verse 3, he was despised and he was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one for whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. It says this in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. It says that he was despised and he was rejected by men. Why do I think, why do we think that it's so important that Isaiah shows that this servant was rejected by the rebellious people? Because when you're somebody that wants to go your own way, and God sends his servant to us, as we know this is Jesus. See, Jesus 
was despised by men. He was rejected by men. John 1 tells us this, that he came to his own and his own didn't even know him. He came to his own people and they didn't even embrace him or recognize him. And here's the truth is this, is that it is easier to do our own thing when we reject God. You don't fight with God. We don't fight with God. Sometimes we just outlandishly reject God. We just say, okay, God's not there, so I'll just do my own thing. It is easier for rebellious people to deal with Jesus if Jesus isn't there. And so here's what Isaiah 53 says, is that he was despised by men and he was rejected by men. He wasn't fought by men. He was rejected by men. So if I want to not have to deal with something, what do I do? I put it out of my mind and I reject it. Why? Because I don't think that this servant, Jesus, validated the rebellious people's lifestyle. Everything about Jesus was lowly, was humble, and it didn't validate rebellious people's fight for position or for status or for stuff. His way of life was totally different than all the rebellious people. His thoughts about how you spend your money, his thoughts about life, his thoughts about everything were so absolutely different. And so what do I do when something makes me uncomfortable? I reject it. And here's what Isaiah 53 says. He was despised by men and he was rejected. And it still happens today, doesn't it? People still despise Jesus and they still reject him because when I get around Jesus, his desire to sacrifice greatly for people makes me feel a little uncomfortable in my pursuit of comfort. His humility makes me feel not validated in my pride. He makes me feel uncomfortable. So what do you do with people that make you feel uncomfortable? You reject them. Isaiah says he was rejected by man. He was despised by man. They didn't want him around. They didn't like him. So Isaiah chapter 53 says that he came to rebellious people, and these rebellious people rejected him. But check this out. It kind of continues on here. And in verses 4 and 5, we see this. The servant who was rejected by rebellious men who wanted to do their own thing and go their own way. Check out verse 4. It says this, Surely the servant has borne our grief and he's carried our sorrow, and yet we esteemed him as stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that has brought us peace was placed. And with his stripes we've been healed. So here's the deal. This servant that Isaiah is prophesying about came to these rebellious people. And these rebellious people rejected him because they wanted to go their own way and do their own thing. But in the midst of that, this servant that Isaiah is talking about steps in and takes the affliction. He takes the depression. He takes the sorrow. He takes all of that from these rebellious people. Look at what it says. Chapter 5. I mean, chapter 53, verse 5. He was wounded our transgressions or our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him the chastisement that brought us peace was placed, and with his stripes we are healed. It says that, if you've got your Bible, skip down to verse 7. It says this, he was oppressed, he was afflicted. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. To oppress somebody basically is a word here that taskmasters or slave owners would use when they wanted to press hard in on their slaves and make them work hard with no food and no rest or anything like that. So here's what it's saying. This servant came to rebellious people. Rebellious people wanted to do their own thing, so they rejected the servant. The servant then, in response to that, did not say anything against the rebellious people. 
Instead, he did the opposite. He took the rebellious people's affliction. He took their pain. He took their sin. He took their sorrow. And the Bible says he became a man of sorrows. He took it all upon himself. And it says in Isaiah 53 that the chastisement that brought us peace was upon the servant. So the servant, rejected by rebellious people, doesn't respond in anger. What's he respond with? He says, I'll give you my life. I'll give you peace. The word there for peace is shalom. It's what's written on my wrist. Shalom means not just peace. In Israel, when you see someone, you'll be walking down the street, and if it's Shabbat, they'll say Shabbat shalom. If it's just, if it's just a greeting, they'll say shalom. It basically equals peace. So it would be like us walking around saying, peace, hey man, what's going on? But it's deeper than that. The one of the reasons I got this is because it, it has this amazingly deep meaning, and basically it's this. Shalom is the abiding peace of God that cannot be broken. That's what it means. And this first letter here is the Hebrew shin. It stands for, by itself, Almighty God. And so peace in Hebrew begins with Almighty God. Here is the servant coming to rebellious people who've rejected him who have no peace. How do, we have no, how do we know that the rebellious people have no peace? Well, here's what it says, that he bore their grief. He bore their grief. He took on their sorrow. He took on their sin. I don't know about you, but grief and sorrow and sin do not equal peace for me, do they? And here's what I know that's true in this room tonight, is that some of us are heavy burdened with grief. Some of us are heavy burdened with shame. Some of us are heavy burdened with sin. And here's the amazing thing, is that 700 years ago, Isaiah the prophet said there will be a servant who will come to rebellious people, and the rebellious people will reject him. But the, prof but the prophet said this, the servant, in spite of the rejection by rebellious people that he's come to, will take their sorrow, he will take their depression, he will take their anxiety, he will take their sin, he will take all of it on himself, and then he will be crushed for our iniquity. Man, that's amazing. I want you to think about that for a second. And what he offers us in return is peace, deep, abiding peace. He takes my sorrow and my sin and he gives me his peace. But not just peace so I can feel good, peace with God so I can be reunited and not rebellious anymore. Then it continues on and says this, that this, this servant came, he came to rebellious people, the rebellious people rejected him. The servant was a substitute in a sense for rebellious people. But look at verse 7 and 9, it says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lion, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that was before its shears was silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Basically this, the servant that Isaiah was prophesying about came to rebellious people. The rebellious people rejected the servant. The servant was a substitute taking on the sorrow of the rebellious people. And then the servant died at the hands of the rebellious people. He was taken on their sorrow and their grief and their pain, and they were the ones killing him. Check this out. It says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. I want you to think about this for a second, because there's, there's a process here. It says, verse 7, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, 
And then it says that he was taken before the shears. When they have the shears, basically they strip the lamb of all of its wool so they can use it, and then they take it and they kill it. So I don't know about you, but being led to the slaughter is not something I necessarily want. Jesus knew that all of his pain and his affliction would not end until resurrection. Here's what Jesus knew. His pain and his affliction was leading somewhere. So he was like a a lamb being led to the slaughter. And it wasn't going to end until it ended in death. But then it says this. Check this out. It says, like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. The day that Jesus died on the cross, he was stripped of everything. He was stripped of his dignity. He was stripped of his honor. He was mocked. He hung there naked. Face level with people. That day on the cross, Jesus was more naked and vulnerable than anybody ever will be or ever has been in history. And Isaiah 53 predicted it long ago, that he would be like a lamb who would be sheared and would be naked to be vulnerable for these rebellious people, for these people that he had come to that had rejected him and he had taken on their sorrow and their pain and their sin, and they would kill him at their hands. They would crucify him. They would sacrifice this lamb. He was the Passover lamb like we talked about. And it says this as it continues on. It says that he died at the hands and he suffered at the hands of the rebellious people but here's the really amazing part. It, go, it goes on here. Look at, look at it, verse 9. They made a grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Here's what we know about Jesus, is that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man, came and asked for the body of Jesus, and they were going to basically take him and put him in a grave with a bunch of other thieves and robbers and murderers. And Joseph of Arimathea and a guy came, and they took the body of Jesus, and he was buried in a place where rich people were buried. Isaiah predicted it long ago. Verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. But look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So we ask the question, who killed the servant? It's true that the servant suffered at the hands of the rebellious people. He came to rebellious people. Rebellious people rejected him. He took on the sorrow of the rebellious people, and he suffered at the hands of the rebellious people. But ultimately, who killed the servant? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who killed Jesus? Some people say the Jews killed Jesus. Some people say you and I killed Jesus because of our sin, which is true to an extent. But here's what is ultimately true is that in Genesis, it was the plan of God to save us through a blood sacrifice. So ultimately, even though the Jews were the ones who immediately killed Jesus, I mean, they were there, and our sin put Jesus on the cross, God ultimately was the one who allowed Jesus to go to the cross. It says it was the will of the Lord that he would be crushed. Why? Because of the deep love of God. Watch what it continues to say here. It says, when his soul made an offering for guilt, he would see his offspring, us, those who would accept Christ, trust in Christ. And he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge he shall see the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He said many people will be given righteousness because of what this servant will do for rebellious people. But then he goes on and he says this, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors or the sinners. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor and for the sinner. Here's this last part, 12. Jesus, this lamb, this servant, came to rebellious people. Rebellious people rejected him because they wanted to go their own way. So what do you do when you want to go your own way? You reject that thing. You reject Christ. Rebellious people rejected him. So in response, the servant, Jesus, takes on the sorrow of the rebellious people. He takes on the sin of the rebellious people. But then it says this, that the servant suffered at the hands of the rebellious people. They tortured him. They oppressed him. They took him like a lamb, and they slaughtered him. But then verse 12 says this, that he will take his victory and his spoils, like a king who goes in and overtakes a country and has gold and has mansions and has castles, and he gives it away to his subjects. He says he will take all that he has. Because here's the deal. There is a picture that the servant suffers, but there's also a picture that in the midst of the suffering, the servant is exalted, that Christ would be exalted. Look at what it says. Verse 10, it says, it's the will of the Lord to crush him, and he will be put to grief. But then it says this, verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. There's this sense that in the middle of all this anguish, that God was going to exalt his servant. And when he does give him the victory, it says he's going to give all of this stuff to those who have trusted him. There is a victory. And here's the crazy thing, that this servant came to rebellious people. Rebellious people rejected him. So what he did in return was he took the sorrow of the rebellious people, even though they were rebellious and wanted to do their own thing. And when he took the sorrow of the rebellious people, he suffered at the hands of rebellious people. But even though he was suffering at the hands of rebellious people, verse 12 says this, ultimately, he would share his victory. He would share his victory with the rebellious people. I don't get that. Verse 12 says that he will share, he will divide his spoils. It says he will share that with those rebellious people, the same people who he took on their sin and their suffering, the same people who rejected him, the same people that said, I want to go do my own thing. This servant that Isaiah was talking about, and he had no clue who he was talking about, would take all that he got in this victory, and he would give it to those rebellious, ungrateful people. That is a 700-year in advance picture of Christ. Isaiah 53. What does that do for us? Well, here's, it does two things. It reveals that Christ is who he said he was. Jesus fulfilled every single bit of this prophecy to a T. He was beaten. He was laid on the cross. He was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. He was silent. When Jesus was on the cross, he did not utter a thing like the other murderers and thieves did when they were on the cross. Typically, just to be honest with you, I studied crucifixion when I was in seminary. I wrote a whole paper on it. When people were on the cross and they were crucified, here's what would happen is they would be up there, and they were mocked, and they were angry, and these people were murderers, and they were thieves, so they would cuss at people when they went by. Some of them would urinate because they wanted the people to be disgusted as they walked by. It was a horrible thing to see crucifixion. What does the Bible say that Jesus did? He was silent, but he said a few things. One of which was this. Father, 
forgive them because they don't know what they do. That is the heart of God pursuing man. Rebellious people that hated Jesus and wanted to go their own way. That is what all of us want to do. If you don't think you're in that boat, you've lied to yourself. Every single day is a battle for me not to go my own way. And the rebellious people who mock Jesus are the very people that Jesus came and died for. And as they're mocking him and beating him and nailing him to a cross, he's praying for them. Because God is a pursuing God. Because God is a God of love. And in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your rebellion, Jesus says, I've pursued you in your rebellion. And Isaiah talked about it 700 years before it would happen. That God is the pursuer of the rebellious people that care nothing about him, but he longs to win their heart. He would go to the depths to do it. We're going to worship a little bit tonight in response to the fact that God is a pursuing God and that he comes to rebellious people like us and saves us. This should do one major thing for you tonight. It should stir your affections for Jesus. I'm convinced that... um, A lot of the reason why we don't share Christ a whole lot, a lot of the reason why we don't sacrifice a whole lot for the cause of the kingdom and the sake of the gospel is because our affections just are not regularly stirred for Jesus. We get used to the gospel. We get used to hearing that Jesus died. We get used to hearing about his blood. We get used to hearing about the cross. We get used to all that stuff. And we forget that Jesus came to us, rebellious people. We rejected him because we wanted to go our own way, and yet, The servant, Jesus, took on my sorrow and my depression and my anxiety and my sin. And he gave me his victory. So tonight we're going to worship him for that. If you don't know Christ and you're here tonight, the Bible says that you can call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Jesus pursues you in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your rebellion. And if you're here tonight and you want to talk to somebody about that, I'd be willing to talk to you. you came with a friend tonight, they'd be willing to talk to you about what it means to know Jesus Christ. There's people in the prayer room tonight that would love to talk to you about what it means to know Christ. So tonight we're going to worship a little bit. Um, And the prayer room is open. You can go there as well. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this picture. 700 years prior to Christ that you spoke through a guy named Isaiah, and, and he didn't fully even know what he was talking about. But someday that there would be a servant who would come out of Israel that would come to rebellious people with rebellious hearts. And though he'd be rejected by those rebellious people and he would be beaten by those rebellious people and he would be murdered by those rebellious people, he would be crushed for their iniquity, for their sorrow. He would take it all. And in return, he would share with them his peace and his victory. Christ, you've done that for us. So God, I pray that you would stir our affections for you, that you would remind us that our rebellion left unchecked will lead us to places we don't want to go because all of us are like sheep. We're stupid at times, but you draw us back to you. So God, I pray that tonight we would worship you as people who have realized that you have pursued us in our rebellion and that you continue to pursue us in our rebellion, even to this day. We love you, Jesus. We worship you now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship our God.